The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Our text today is James chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. James 3, 5 to 10. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. This is the word of the Lord. In the larger context of the passage that was just read, we see in James chapter 3, verse 1, that the church is given a very sobering warning about those who want to be teachers. And at Bethlehem, we are committed to raising up teachers for our children, our youth, our adults. We even have a college and seminary that is devoted to equipping men and women to teach God's Word. Not only here in Minneapolis, but even as far away as in Cameroon, we are establishing an extension site to raise up pastors there who will teach and preach God's Word. And that's where you've sent me and the Tamfus to serve. And it's a pleasure to represent this church in Cameroon. So thank you for all your sending of us. But James warns, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment. And then James supports his warning by calling attention to what is true of all of us, that we all stumble in many ways through the use of our words. He warns us how powerful and dangerous our words can be. In verse 6 of the passage that was just read, we can see the power of our words very clearly. They can stain the whole body. They set on fire the entire course of our life when we say the wrong words sometimes. And they are set on fire. These words are set on fire by hell. And this is strong language. Then James says in verse 9, with this tongue we bless our Lord and Father And with it, we curse people 
who are made in the likeness of God. And in verse 10, he says, From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers and my sisters, these things ought not to be this way. They ought not to be so. And that's the title of this message. These things ought not to be. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday here at Bethlehem and around the United States. And it might seem strange that I go to this passage about speech, but what I want us to notice from this passage is that there is a profound theological ground behind this command not to use our words to harm people. This ground is found in the statement in verse 9 that people are created in the likeness of God. This is foundational to what is meant by the term the sanctity of life as it pertains to human beings. Human beings are way more than just a bunch of molecules and cells and bones and muscles and hair, which our pet dogs all have. Human beings alone are made in the image of God. All human beings are in the image of God, both redeemed human beings and human beings who have yet to bow the knee to Jesus. All are image bearers of Almighty God. And James' strict warning in this passage is that how we treat image bearers of Almighty God matters more than we can realize. There is something holy about all human life something that sets human beings apart from all the rest of God's good creation. And that's that we are in the image of God. So part of the sanctity of life has to do with how we speak to one another. Speech is a sanctity of life issue. In Ephesians 4, 29 to 30, it says, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. And then there's a purpose clause so that it might give grace to those who hear. Our words are sacramental. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Any speech that isn't giving grace to those who hear is a grief to the Holy Spirit. But in fact, sanctity of life extends to all aspects of life, from human trafficking to physical, sexual, verbal abuse to slander to gossip to euthanasia, and the list could go on. 
All these issues have to do with the sanctity of human life. To be created in the image of God has profound implications in every kind of interpersonal interaction. But the issue that I want to focus our attention on this morning is the issue of abortion. Fifty fifty years ago this very day, January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court passed legislation. The Roe versus Wade case decided that abortion during the first trimester of pregnancy was to be regarded as legal in all 50 states. And since that time, the first trimester restriction has virtually evaporated. Over 63 million babies have been aborted in America legally since 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. About 700,000 of those in Minnesota. Last year, in answer to many prayers, prayed for 50 years, that Supreme Court decision was overruled. The majority of the court agreed with Associate Justice Samuel Alito's wording that says, and this is the quote from the briefing, procuring an abortion is not a fundamental right because such a right has no basis in the Constitution's text or in our nation's history. The majority opinion of the court also said that Roe v. Wade decision was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. Sixty-three million image bearers aborted. For this wrong judicial decision to be overturned is an undeserved mercy for our country that we can praise God for. What an amazing answer to prayer, persistent prayer. And it has made a difference. Now that the abortion issue is brought back to the states, it has freed many states to have very restrictive abortion laws. And we praise God for that. But as, all, as we all know, the battle for the sanctity of life of the unborn rages on. And Minnesota is no exception. On Friday, a bill was passed. On Friday, two days ago, a bill was passed in the House here in Minnesota that makes getting an abortion in our state as easy it is as to get one in North Korea and China. If the Senate approves the bill, perhaps this week, one of the most 
Um, in our state, um, if, if the Senate approves the bill, one of the most abortion-friendly of the states in the United States will become Minnesota. We will be one of the most friendly abortion states where our neighbors will send people here. Our neighbors that have more restrictive abortion laws will send people here. I recently wrote to some of our leaders, and one of them sent me a generic reply. And so I wrote back, and here's what I said. I said, thank you for your response. I appreciate much of your work for the benefit of Minnesota and our country. But your support of abortion reflects very blatantly our culture's arrogance that denies the clear humanity of the preborn child with all the powers of science behind it, let alone the Word of God. A woman's choice does not determine the humanity of a child. A child is human regardless of the choice she makes. Our choice, choices do not and cannot alter fundamental facts. Thankfully, in, 19, in 1867, the Supreme Court changed its mind that black people should be counted as three-fifths of a person so that they could be kept from becoming U.S. citizens. The Supreme Court recognized the horror of their previous decision and now granted our black brothers and sisters full humanity. May it be so with abortion. May abortion become as unthinkable as slavery. I go on to write to her, please don't be part of the racism and the misogyny of abortion. I ache that the decisions before the legislature in Minnesota will put us in the tiny group with North Korea and China. Where is your passion for human rights, especially the most voiceless and marginalized human beings on earth? Praying for you, Tom Steller. If you have been a part of Bethlehem for any length of time, you know that this is an issue that we have addressed many times. It's not a hobby horse that we talk about every week, but we've addressed this many times, and not just with our words, but also with our deeds. Abortion was pressed home into my conscience in a profoundly deep way back in 1986. Pastor David Michael helped to form the Sanctity of Life ministry team which is still serving us to this day. They strategized how to help women, how to help women with unexpected pregnancies. And they also helped Bethlehem to feel the horror of abortion. In addition to educating the church about abortion, they passed out these, these little plastic figures of a, a little baby, about 14 weeks gestation. Children, you were once this little, and now they are much bigger. But they passed this out to us, and uh, I put it in my pocket or kept it in my desk drawer, 
And for some reason, the Lord used it. So when I put my hand in my pocket, it just helped prompt me to pray, to pray for things to change, pray for God's name not to be blasphemed in this way and children to be spared. And as time went on, we learned more of the facts of the atrocity of abortion and decided there was more that we should do. There was a season where we as pastors and others from Bethlehem took part in rescue efforts to stand in front of abortion clinics peacefully, humbly, not blaring anything, just praying and pleading for people not to go in and abort their child. We were motivated by Proverbs 24.11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. We were arrested several times. We stood before the judge in the courtroom. Some of us spent time in jail. And God used that time to solidify the issue in our minds and in our hearts that this is an issue that felt to us every bit as ugly and horrific as slavery and the Holocaust. We couldn't just ignore it like too many people ignored the Holocaust. Many years ago, I visited the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem called Yad Vashem. Some of you have been there. And when I walked into the museum in Jerusalem, the first thing I saw was a satellite photo proving that the West knew about the Holocaust quite a while before it acted. The passion behind the museum is that this horrific evil of anti-Semitic genocide would be known and would never happen again. I had a similar experience several years ago, not that many years ago, when Pastor Kenny took the pastors to the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, which is also known as the Lynching Museum. The museum graphically and honestly tells a story of slavery and racism in our country. And the horrors of slavery and the horrors of the Holocaust are seared into my soul. And the horror of 63 million image bearers aborted is also seared into my soul and into so many of yours as well. In 1987, see, I'm taking you back to a previous millennium, and many of you weren't even alive back then, but some of you were. I can, I can see you. In 1987, we started recognizing the anniversary of Roe versus Wade as the Sanctity of Life Sunday. Every year at this time, we, every year at this time, we preach a sermon that brings God's word to bear on this moral and cultural issue. Bethlehem has done this for 36 years. 
I encourage you to go to the desiringgod.org website, type in abortion, and pretty soon you'll come to a place of, of, of sermons on abortion. And you can just scroll down year after year after year since 1987. And there's a whole theology of the sanctity of life laid out year after year after year. By God's grace, we have done more than preach. By God's grace and for his glory, by his power, we've done more than preach. The preaching has fueled action. The Sanctity of Life ministry team is still alive and well and active. Delcy Baxter has been part of it from the very beginning and continues to serve as one of its leaders. But so many of you have prayed or have written letters or have counseled on the sidewalk at abortion clinics or have come alongside the women with surprise pregnancies with very compassionate and practical help. Many of you have adopted at-risk children, participated in the March for Life at the Capitol, even in below-zero weather. And the March for Life is again today at 2 o'clock in 21-degree weather, no wind chill. One way or another, so many of you have advocated for the life of the unborn And I praise God for this church. We're not trying to get everyone to be activists, though we praise God for those who are led to be activists and for those who are led to address it in the political sphere. But there are countless ways to stand up for life. I encourage you to stop by the New Life Family Services table in the main hall on your way out. And uh, you'll pick up a brochure that I have somewhere. I'll show it to you later. um, That has 17 ways to be involved. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so we're not trying to cookie-cutter any kind of approach, but just some kind of appropriate response in all of us. And at our Wednesday connection, on this Wednesday you'll hear more about this issue and ways we can respond. For some of you, this might be a new issue that you haven't thought a lot about yet. Like I, before 1987, I just had not thought about it. I was at Bethel College in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed, and I don't remember anything, not anything about it. I see the the Walter Cronkite video come up where he announces the passing of the bill now and makes me think that maybe I was watching the news back then, but I don't know if I was. So I encourage you to get more up, up to date, to read a few things. We have a couple books in our bookstore written by John Enzer, who's a friend of Bethlehem and has thought deeply about this issue, and they're very wonderful introductory books. And we are also painfully aware that there are people in this sanctuary 
and people online who have had abortions in their life or maybe encouraged a loved one to have an abortion. And our desire is not in any way to heap condemnation on you. So glad you're here. So glad you're listening. But our heart's desire is to encourage you to find relief and healing and full forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And all of us have committed sins that we're very ashamed about. Jesus can lift that shame off of us and replace it by giving us an awareness of the Father's smile on our lives and his pronouncement, not guilty, forgiven, cleansed. God does not sweep our guilt under the sun or out under the rug as if it doesn't matter. He has given us his son who paid the full penalty of our sin through his perfect life, his death and resurrection, and his constant intercession for us at the Father's right hand. The gospel is the ultimate antidote to all the issues surrounding abortion. So that's why our primary unchangeable task at Bethlehem is to hold up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do today and every day in every sermon and also as we tackle the sanctity of life issues. Now I want to get back to our text for a moment. In James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, as I said earlier, the foundation for the sanctity of life that must govern how we treat our fellow human beings is that they have been made in the likeness of God. Though the focus in James here is the sanctity of life issue of speech, and elsewhere in James of the poor, of poverty, um, those kinds of things, the foundation for his foundation must be expanded to every area of human-to-human action from euthanasia, from euthanasia to our treatment of the unborn. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, helps us to feel the weight and God-centeredness of our interpersonal relationships. So I'm just going to read a paragraph from The Weight of Glory. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. 
It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Ultimately, abortion is about God. And Bethlehem College and Seminary created a course on abortion that you can download on the Internet, both a student's manual and a teacher's manual. And the title of the course is Abortion is About God, Reframing a Moral Issue. There's no place in the Bible that makes this clearer than Psalm 139. This is a psalm of David, who, if you remember, himself faced a crisis pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy that he helped bring about. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and caused her to become pregnant. And shame and fear led him to try to cover it up at any cost. So he arranged for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed in battle, really murdering him. And Bathsheba's baby died inside her womb. In Psalm 51, you can read David's confession, where he says in verse 4, Against you, talking to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, he committed sin against Uriah and Bathsheba, but ultimately he recognized that our sin is offense, an offense against our holy, loving God. David saw the true horror of what he did. His sin of killing Uriah one who was made in the image of God, was murder. Though David did not abort the image-bearer in Bathsheba's womb, the baby's death was God's judgment, says, for his sin of murder and adultery. At another time in David's life, he describes for us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the pre-born infant's relation to God, his Maker. In closing, let's look at Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. I'll read it for you. You can turn if you want. But in this psalm, David is praising God for God's omnipresence. God is everywhere present. Where can we go from your presence? We can't go up to the heights, can't go into Sheol. We, there's no place we can go that makes us escape from your presence. God is present and at work everywhere 
including the mother's womb. So listen carefully from verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And then David grounds this assurance by calling our attention to the inner sanctuary of the womb. Begins with a four. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Eight days ago, my baby Emma, who's now 23, married to this macho police officer. But Emma, the youngest of my six children, delivered her first baby. And she (laughs) named him Thomas, which was amazing. Little Tommy. When I held little Tommy in my arms, my soul was filled with praise to the one who in the past nine months was forming his inward parts, knitting him together inside Emma's womb, fearfully and wonderfully making him. Tommy's developing frame was never hidden from God as he was being made in secret, being intricately woven together. God's eyes were looking on his unformed substance, and God was writing every single day of Tommy's life before he was even born. The mother's womb is a sanctuary. It is not meant to be evaded, invaded by instruments of death. Earlier in the service today, you got to see Olivia's journey from conception until birth. And I wanted you to see it because I've been reading a great book by Marvin Olasky and Leah Salvas that's just come out. I don't know if it's even... I I listened to it through Audible. But it's called The History of Abortion in America. Amazing. I hope you can read it. We don't have it yet in our bookstore. But, uh, But in that story, they talk about the power of teaching people about the development of the child in the womb, which has been done in different stages with increasing accuracy over time. But it started being done years ago, and it 
changed a lot of things. And now, man, um, the amazing technology of high-definition ultrasound, even low-definition ultrasound, but high-definition ultrasound, has has obliterated every false claim that the preborn child is just a clump of cells, just a part of a woman's body which she can choose to remove at any time like an appendix. Abortion is so much more than a woman's choice, so much more than a political issue, so much more than a male-pressured decision. It is a snuffing out of an image-bearer of Almighty God, and it is a wickedness beyond description. To use the words of James, my brothers and my sisters, these things ought not to be. Let's pray. Father, I feel heavy this morning and I feel hopeful this morning. Heavy and hopeful. Heavy at the atrocity of all of our sins and hopeful for your amazing ability to forgive our sins and to one day eradicate sin from this universe. And so we praise you and we ask that you would take these words and shape us as best pleases you. We praise you, Christ, that you are our hope in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.